Well, that takes me back a long ways. <clears throat> well, this morning, I want to talk to you about blended families. And this is a challenging message for me. And, and with three services, this is the third time that I'll bring this message. And I'm, I'm a little bit insecure about it today. And I just want to be straight up with you about it. Because I know that some of you are going to come in here today. And you're going to say, I really don't know that this message has a whole lot for me personally. And I understand that because it just may be that I've, this message finds you in a life situation that doesn't really touch on, on being a part of a blended family, and I'm okay with that. But at the same time, I know that you may tend to zone out on me, and I would ask you not to do that for a very, very important reason. And it's this. One-third of our population as a nation is either a step-parent, step-child, step-sibling, or part of a blended family. And so even if it's not your personal situation now, it could be. And beyond that, you're going to talk to people every day that are working through this kind of situation. And they may reach out to you and ask, how do I, how do I make this family work? And there's some things that you're going to learn today that could be really helpful, and you might be able to help someone else. So even if this is not your situation today, could I ask you just to listen to this and give it a hearing because God may use you to take today's message into places that I can't take it or television can't take it. Well, let's just start off with this. Our culture's changed a lot. In 1930, when Franklin Roosevelt said in a speech, all we have to fear is fear itself, one out of seven marriages ended in divorce. That meant that if you walked the aisle in 1930 and you pledged your love to a man or woman in a wedding, you had about an 85% chance that it was going to work and it was going to stay together for a lifetime. But by 1960, 30 years later, when John F. Kennedy stood on the steps of the Capitol and said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, the statistic had changed to one out of four. But even still, in 1960, when I was four years old, um, if you walked down the aisle and you got married, you had a 75% chance that it was going to work. Today, it's one out of two. And so if you get married today, you got a 50-50 shot. And that's not the best odds in the world. So I think we ought to ask ourselves, just before we get started and cranked up on this thing about blended families, why have we seen such a change in our country today? I mean, just asking the question, why is divorce so much more common than it was 80 years ago? And I know there are all kinds of reasons and answers for that and sociological studies and, and things that weigh in. And, and maybe some of you have gone through a divorce yourself and you may have some things that you would add to that list of why divorces happen. But I will just tell you this, Jesus gets it down to one sentence and he explains to us in one sentence why divorces happen. This is in the book of Matthew chapter 19 because he was asked about divorce. And by the way, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, the, the subject of divorce and blended families was coming up. When Jesus was doing his teaching, they came to him and said, what about divorce? And there were all kinds of views about divorce. There were sort of hyper-conservative views about it, and there were sort of liberal views about it, and there were those who said a divorce can never happen. There was those who said a divorce can happen under these circumstances. And then there were those who said, well, you know, and it was very a male-oriented culture in those days. Women were treated very, very badly. 
And there was one rabbi going around who was very popular, as you can imagine, who just said if a guy was unhappy with his wife for any reason, he could just write her a page and says, you're divorced, you're out of here. No settlement, no alimony, no nothing, just you're divorced. In fact, he even taught that if she burned dinner, he could divorce her. If he didn't like her mother, he could divorce her. And that's how it was. And so people came to Jesus and they said, what about this divorce thing? And, and, and instead of going to all the exclusions that the different rabbis taught and the reasons for divorce, Jesus just said, it was never intended. This is not the way God designed things to work. But here's why Jesus said divorces happen. Here was his one line. He said it happens because of the hardness of hearts. Now, I can be hard-headed at times. Can you? I really can. I don't know why I'm that way, but I can really be hard-headed at times. I'm very competitive, and I can be hard-headed. When I'm hard-headed, you know what that means? It means I refuse to think a different way. It means that somebody else's ideas can't get through. I've, I've, locked, I've locked them out. I've, I've blocked them off. I'm hard-headed. I refuse to think a different way. Sometimes that's good. Often it's bad. But it's far worse to be hard-hearted. Because if I'm hard-hearted, that means... I don't let someone else into my heart. I don't let someone else into my love. I've shut my heart down. I refuse to love is what Jesus is saying. So he's saying divorces happen because somebody refused to love. And, and you may be here today and you know exactly what Jesus was talking about because when you got married, you meant for it to last a lifetime. But the guy you married to closed his heart off. And he decided he wasn't going to love you anymore. Or maybe the woman that you married just said, I'm, I'm, I'm locked, I'm closed. I don't love you anymore. And you know what that's all about. And and that's what Jesus said. That's the reason why divorces happen. Somebody chose not to love. Well, even though I'm not talking about marriage today, you know, other than just blended families, I just want to remind us all as we get to the end of love affair that what makes a home successful is people choose to love each other. You know, if you hold people, you know, and you're always testing your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents, if you're always testing people to see if they're worthy of your love, that's a failed proposition before it starts. You've got to choose to love. And sometimes you choose to love someone who's hard to love. But Jesus said divorces happen because people, they, they choose not to love. So, let's think about what happens then. Because, you know, when, when a divorce happens and someone chooses not to love and, and, and you're left standing there and you're thinking, what do I do? Does my life end? The answer to that is no. Because 75% of people who go through a divorce will get remarried. But all you have to do is just, just take a cursory look at, at, at statistics or just the thought of that. And if you realize if half of marriages are ending in divorce and 75% of people who are divorced remarry, then we all know that there are going to be some complicated circumstances that are going to arise from all of that. There are going to be people trying to put families together that it's the second try or the third try. And, and I have perhaps kids from my previous marriage and, and, and the wife has kids from her previous marriage. And, and if you've been in that situation, you know what it's like. I've never been there. Fortunately, God has been very good to me. I married my high school sweetheart. We're still married. And I thank God for that. But at the same time, it could have happened differently. And some of you know what it's like when it, it doesn't work out that way. So what happens then? We married the wrong person, perhaps, someone would say, and now I'm marrying someone else, and I don't have, I'm not going to have the problems. Things are going to be better because I'm not married to the, the jerk that I was married to before, and now everything's going to be fine. And beyond that, I'm smarter. I know what to look for now. So we would assume that second marriages would be more successful than first marriages because it's just natural. If I try something once and I learn something and I try it again, I have a higher likelihood of being successful the second time. It does work for some people that way. Maybe it's worked for you that way. I'm glad it has. 
But statistically, the odds are against that because 60% of second marriages fell. So it's not a better circumstance nationally. 60% of second marriages fell. Well, maybe the third time's the charm. 75% of third marriages fell. Why does that happen? I want to talk about that today because some of you may be either entering a second marriage or, or maybe you're getting close and you're contemplating that. Why do so many second and third marriages fail? I want to give you four thoughts, maybe five thoughts if I have time. And, and you can just take a look at these and see what you think about these. But I, I think, number one, one reason why many second marriages fail is that people go into marriage and they're not ready for it. They get into marriage for the wrong reasons. And, and, and some of those reasons can just be, you know, one of them can be I'm lonely. I mean, when, you, when you go through a divorce, as some of you know, it's just so hard. You've always had that person there. You've always had that husband, that wife there to talk to. And you go home to your apartment, and there's no one to talk to. Or maybe it's just the kids, and you need that adult companionship. And so someone could say, well, I'm not really sure about this guy. I'm not really sure about this gal, but I'm just so lonely. If I married someone, that loneliness would go away. That sounds good, but it's not the right reason to get remarried. Others would say, I just don't think it's fair to my kids not to have both parents in the home. You know, I feel bad because their dad walked away, and and I just feel like, you know, a boy needs a dad, or, you know, a girl needs a mom, and I just feel bad. I I feel like my kids need two parents in the home. Sounds good, but that's still not the right reason to get remarried. Some people get remarried because they think it'll make the pain go away. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. And it's because my marriage broke up, so therefore, if I get into another marriage, it's going to make all the pain go away. And for some of you who, who have had to put together a new family, you know that's not always the case. In fact, it's rarely the case. Some say, well, you know, finances are just awful. And it's hard for me to make ends meet. If I had another wage earner in the home, maybe my kids would have a better life. So I'm going to marry someone who's going to bring more finances into the family. Still not a good reason. And there are those who say, well, you know, the biological clock is ticking and I want to have another baby. I want to have another child. Well, that's not a good reason. But I do think that's one reason why many marriages, second marriages, fail. Because people are not ready for a new relationship. They go into it for the wrong reasons. Another reason why second marriages fail is because people believe a myth. People say often, I married the wrong guy the first time, so now I'm going to marry someone new. And since he's not the same guy, I won't have any problems anymore. Or she's not the same woman that I married. You know, my ex was my problem. And so when I get married again, I'm not going to have any problems. I know you love me. And I'm leaving the country this week so I can feel the courage to say this. (laughs) A lot of our problems are between our ears. I mean, you could have married a total mess. I'm not saying you did. But no matter who you are, starting with yours truly right here, a lot of our problems are between our ears. And if we go into a new relationship thinking, all my problems were my ex, so therefore I won't have any problems anymore, I can assure you, you will still have them because you could be a, you could be, you could be a saint. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are. You could be a saint and still have brought some problems into your first marriage. So that, that's a myth that I'm not marrying the same guy, I'm marrying a different person. I, I'll, it'll all be different this time. The third reason that I think oftentimes second marriages fail is because people are still hurting. They're still working through the grief. You know, when you you lose a loved one and you go through a time of grief, that's not a good time to make serious decisions. 
I always counsel people, if you just lost a, a mate or a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter to death, that's a very tough time, very hard time to make any kind of substantial decision. I really encourage people not to move during that time. I encourage people not to take on, you know, a whole lot of new uh, commitments because when you grieve, you need time to grieve. Well, let me just tell you what I've heard in 30 years of pastoring. I've heard people who've gone through both the death of a family member and a divorce. And in almost every situation, they will say, Mark, the divorce was so much harder than the death. Because the death, no one could do anything about that. But the divorce was so painful and so ugly. If you've gone through a divorce, you need time to grieve. You need time to heal. And if you rush into another relationship, and somebody could say, well, Mark, we did it, and it worked. And I I know I'm I'm a little insecure about that for this message, because I know not every circumstance is the same. I realize that I found you in all kinds of different situations, and there are exceptions to a lot of rules. I know that. But I'm just telling you, normally speaking, it takes time to heal after a divorce. Listen, you show me a divorce, I'll show you anger somewhere. And it's important to get rid of that anger before you go into a new relationship. Why? Because if you hold on to that anger, you will carry anger into the new marriage. You'll carry anger into the relationship with your other children. And anger that is stored turns into poison. It turns into bitterness. That's why the Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you're mad, lose it before the end of the day. Because if we allow anger to stay in our hearts, it turns into bitterness. I want to read a verse to you out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, where the Bible says, Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Now, what is the Bible saying about bitterness in my heart? If I let anger stay in my heart towards someone and it turns into bitterness, the Bible says it will do two things. Number one, it will bother me. How many of you... Know what bitterness is like. You're anger, angry and you just can't let it go. And it just stays there. And you can't sleep at night. When you wake up, you think about the person that you're angry uh, and, the, and all the things they've done to hurt you. And you know what it's like. Bitterness troubles you. In fact, in a few, few weeks, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. One of the greatest favors that you can ever do for yourself is to forgive the people that hurt you because it cuts you loose and sets you free. But when we hold on to bitterness, it troubles us. That's the first thing it does. But notice the second thing. The Bible says not only does it trouble us, it corrupts everybody around us. If I'm bitter, it will screw up my relationship with my wife. It will mess up my relationship with my kids. It will hurt my relationship with my friends. And could I say, if you're still dealing with bitterness, it's the wrong time to get married. Because it will mess it up. And, and, and here's what I want to caution you about. You've got to understand, I know that listening to me is going to be like drinking out of a fire hose. 30 years of pastoring, 30 years of listening to people has taught me so much. One thing that I hear over and over again, and this is why I, I really want to caution you about going into a new marriage if you're still bitter. Because some people could say, well, Mark, I can compartmentalize that. And besides, I'm not bitter at my new husband. He's awesome. But often what happens in a new relationship is that we'll, 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 we'll transfer all of our hopes and our, and our fears about what went wrong the first time, we'll we'll transpose that onto our new mate with the most optimistic of expectations. You know what? My new husband is so unlike my first husband. My new husband is different. And we'll just like check all these boxes on, on how he's different. My new wife is so different from my first wife. She's totally different. And she's just the most awesome person in the world. And that's why we're getting married. I'm just checking off all these boxes about my new wife and why she's so wonderful and why she's so different. But then we get married and what happens? What happens all the time when we get married? In that first year of adjustment, we find out that, oh, you know, there's some problems here. And so if you're married to this guy and you, you've, you've just like nominated him for sainthood because he's so unlike your first husband, 
And then when you start seeing telltale signs that remind you of things that went wrong the first time, what do you say? All men are alike. All women are alike. And then what we, what we set up so high tumbles and, and goes so low. So I, I just want to encourage you to think about, if you're thinking about getting married again or if you've just gotten remarried, you really need to deal with bitterness or anger. You need to let it go. Turn it over to God. Number four. You know, uh, before I give you number four, could I say this? Um, I'm still in my first marriage, and I can remember the days when, when I got married, and I can tell you this. When I got married, I was a child, and I didn't know it. I thought I was an adult, but I was a kid. And I hadn't grown up yet. And so I still haven't. I always tell my wife, one thing I desire before I die, I want to grow up. <laughs> because I'm still a kid. And, and so when you get married, if you're getting into your first marriage, you can afford to some degree to be a kid. But if you're going into a second marriage, you can't be a kid anymore. You have to grow up and be an adult. And here's why. When you go into a second marriage, it's not going to be just you and your wife in the relationship. There are going to be a lot of people in that relationship. And you have to be adult enough to accept that. You know, I, I know that your exes could have been a mess, but they're still going to be part of that equation. Your kids may be part of that equation. Her kids may be part of that equation. All kinds of grandparents are in there. So when you get married a second time, you just have to step up to the plate and say, okay, I'm not going to go into this naively. I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to know this is going to be a complicated situation where we're all going to have to be an adult here. And many people, unfortunately, don't. They go into it, and they're just still dreaming, and then they, they, they hit the hard realities of, of blended families. But now let me get to the number one reason, the most important. Number, it's the fifth on my list, but I really think it's the most reason, important reason why so many second and third marriages fail. Now, let me give you a statistic again before we get to that one. When people get remarried, they tend to be overly optimistic about the second marriage. But statistics show, studies reveal, that within months of the remarriage, over 50% of people who've gotten remarried feel that they have made a mistake. When, when statisticians and, and, and sociologists, when they study people who are in a second marriage, and they ask them, how do you feel about your marriage months into it? The majority will say, oh, over 50% will say, we think we have made a mistake. Now remember, 50% of first marriage is in a divorce, 60% of second marriage is in a divorce. And, and most 200,000 marriages will end in the United States this year before their second anniversary. Now, I really believe that one of the main reasons why second marriages fell at such a high and alarming rate is people are not patient enough to wait and let God work. Because it's so easy to say, well, I entered this marriage and I thought this was going to make me happy and I'm finally going to be happy and I clearly am not happy. I, I, and then we'll start going back over the list that I just gave. Well, I was in too big of a hurry. I was still angry. I was still bitter. I wasn't thinking clearly. And I got in this marriage. It's a mistake because things are not working out well. And often here's the reason why they don't work out well. If, if there's a guy who comes into a second marriage and he has kids and there's a lady who comes into a marriage and she has kids, it's not just putting together a man and a woman. It's putting together a lot of people. And think about this. Go back to your first marriage. If it was a challenge just for two people to come together and live life together, how much more is it a challenge during the first year of marriage for everybody to try to find their space in equilibrium? And beyond that, you oftentimes have kids who are still grieving the loss of their parents. And so when we, when we, when we say, well, maybe we should just tear it up and start over again, it's such a mistake because studies reveal for a blended family, it takes between two and seven years to adjust and adapt to a blended family. How could we know the outcome within months and especially some of the most difficult months? 
Well, with all these things in mind, I want to shift now because I've been talking about marriage. I want to go to talk about parenting because I really believe that parenting struggles are often the biggest challenge when it comes to making a blended family work. And for all of you who are working through this, you know, no matter where this finds you, if you're part of a blended family, could I encourage you to keep a question before you? The question to ask is not, will I finally be happy now? The question to ask is, how do we make this family work? How do we make everything work? How can we make this work? You know, my wife and I, we're adults. We're in a complicated situation. How do we make this family work? Let's talk about parenting for a few moments. And we're going to divide this because if you're in a blended family, chances are you have a biological parent and you have a step-parent. So let's talk about this from the standpoint of biological parents for a few moments. If you're in a blended family and you're the biological parent, let me give you several good pieces of advice today. Here's number one. Complete the unfinished business. You know, from your first family situation, you don't want to take the business from that first relationship into the second. It's important, as I said a few moments ago, to forgive and to turn things over to God and leave your ex-spouse to God. You want to turn things over to God. You want to make sure that you have completed unfinished business because it's enough of a challenge, as you know. It's enough of a challenge for you to maintain this new family. And so you've, you've got to make sure that any bad feelings, any hard feelings, any ugliness, any pain is turned over to God. You want to make sure you've completed unfinished business because if you go into a parenting situation and you still have unfinished business, you can transpose some of those feelings from your past onto your own children and onto your stepchildren. If you're the biological parent, make sure you've completed unfinished business. This and I'll hurry on quickly. Our culture is in love with one of the most wasted emotions in the world. Our culture loves blame. We love blame. Blame is a waste of time. You know, when you turn on the news and you watch any kind of news story, what do the talking heads want to know? There's always some angry voices wanting to know, who can we blame? Who's to blame? Where are the parents? Where are the teachers? Where, where, you know, why, are the, why are the rules so lax? So who's to blame? Who's to blame? Who's to blame? And what, what do we do? When we're watching that, what are we doing? We're sitting on our couches watching this. Who can we blame? Man, blaming people is a waste of time. Blaming is a poor, weak substitute for serious substantive action. And so we've become a whole nation of spectators. Who can we blame? A waste of time. Listen, if you've gone through hard times, if you've had a bad situation with your first marriage... Don't sit around thinking, well, I'm just going to blame my husband for all this. I'm going to blame my first wife for all this. You don't have time for that. If you're in a new family, you got your hands full. So you want to make sure, number one, if you're the biological parent, you've completed unfinished business. Number two, this may be very hard, but it's so important. Be civil to your ex. You say, Mark, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. No, I don't know. And it may be really ugly, but I know this. If your ex and you share children, it's so important that you still maintain civility with your ex because your kids are going to feed off that. They're going to draw off that. Remember, he's still part of their lives. He's still their dad. She's still their mother. You may be angry. You may never want to see that person again. If somebody could give you a shotgun and the laws could be just blind for a little while, you would know what to do with that person. But still, be civil because it's so important to your kids. Number three, this one is Huge. I'm going to take a little time here with this one. If you're the biological parent, you got to think about a situation that plays out again and again and again. It goes something like this, especially if, let's just say for a moment, you're the dad. And your kids from your first marriage only come over on the weekend. And that's all you have. You have two days with your kids. 
And so, you know, now you're in a marriage and you're married to another lady and she has kids and maybe they live in the home. So it's kind of like that. Your kids only come over on the weekend. Now, what happens when your kids come over on the weekend? Well, you know, first off, you're working through the guilt of the things that you did wrong that messed up their home in the first place, maybe. And you're thinking, I was contributory to some of those things that weren't so good. And now my kids are living in a situation where I don't get to live with them and I only get to see them two days a week. And beyond that, my, wife is, my, ex, my first wife is remarried and there's a stepdad in the home and he's really a cool guy and he plays pitch with them and everything. And I'm afraid my kids are going to lose their affection for me because now they're in the home with the stepdad. And then my kids are coming over and I'm feeling guilty about the situation. And I want to make sure that they have a wonderful time and that they love me. So here's how it's going to work out. When they come over to the house, I'm going to let them do anything they want to do. They just, they can ask for anything they want. They can do anything. I'm not going to sit down on them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get on to them. I'm just going to basically let them do anything they want to do. Well, here's, a, here's, and by the way, the, the, the genders could be switched here just, just as easily as not. But here's a wife over here. She has kids in the home. There are rules. There are parameters that have to be followed all the time in this home. Kids know what's expected. And all of a sudden, here come two kids over from another family, and they can do anything they want to do. And the dad's not going to do anything about it because he's still working through all kinds of guilt issues, and he's afraid maybe that his kids aren't going to love him anymore if he does anything. You tell me what's going to happen in this home. I'm telling you right now. It's going to fail because eventually here's a mom in order to keep order in the home who is finally going to have to cross the line and go over to the stepkids and say, you guys can't do this. And you tell me what's going to happen in that equation. I can tell you what's going to happen. Can you say the word stereotype? The step parent is going to be in a no-win situation because she's going to become the evil with claws stepmother. Or he's going to become the evil overbearing stepfather. Here's the deal. Here's a great rule. If you're the biological parent, you're the disciplinarian for your children. You are the primary disciplinarian for your children because something very toxic happens when the step-parent has to become the primary disciplinarian in the home. And so step up to the plate. You say, well, I don't know. Maybe my kids won't love me. At some point, you have to trust the Lord with this thing. At some point, you just have to say God is still on the throne. And, 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 and here's the thing. I, I see this as I age, as I get older. I come to accept the fact that there are some things that are in my life that will just never be the same. I, I, I can't go back 20 years and change it. I can't go back 20 days and change it. There are just some new realities in my life, and I have to embrace those. And so if you're in a blended family and you've got a previous marriage and children from your first marriage... You're just going to have to accept the fact that there are some things that will never be the same anymore. But God is still God. And the Bible is still true. And Christ is still Lord. All things are possible for those who believe. You've got to trust God with that. Be the primary disciplinarian. Number four, if you're a biological parent, think about your husband or wife and realize what a tough job it is for them to be a step-parent. It's not easy. It is difficult. So those are four good pieces of advice. And by the way, I want to give a tip of the hat to Les and Leslie Parrott for their awesome book on the subject. It's a great, great book if anyone wants to read their book on, on, on saving your second marriage before it starts. Now, it, let's say you're the step-parent. How do you deal with situ- that situation if you're a step-parent? Number one, don't try to replace the biological parent. That happens. And, and again... You know, I, I see this happen. Human psychology is what it is, and I see it happen sometimes with death because when someone loses a loved one, you know, what happens at the funeral? What's this crazy dynamic that makes us want to go to this loved one who's, you know, just walking by the casket of her husband or, or his wife? We want to ask them, are you okay? Are you all right? Well, no, they're not okay. 
They just lost the love of their lives. I mean, it's like we want them, we want some kind of reassurance from people who've just lost somebody very close to them that they're doing okay. And often what we do is we take away that opportunity to grieve. And I, I see the same thing that happens with blended families. You know, here's a man who has kids, here's a lady who has kids, and, and they, they, they believe that it's God's will for them to get married, and so they're putting it all together. What happens to all the rest of us who are friends? We have this inclination to say, how's it working? How's it working? Everything okay? Got the Brady Bunch going on? You know, you got all the orange and the avocado green appliances and all that stuff? Is everything going okay? I mean, it's like, we want reassurance that everything is working okay. No, it's not working okay. I mean, it's not, you know, we talk about blended. At times, it's like a car wreck. It's like two moving institutions have run head-on into each other, and we, 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 we sold ourselves that it would work as we were going through the dating aspect of it, but now we're trying to put it together and make it all work. No, it's not going to be easy. And for those of us who love people who are blended families, we don't need to go to them and say, hey, everything going okay? You're real cool with that? Do your, do your, do your stepkids, do they call you daddy? Do your stepkids, do they call you mom? Even though, you know, we need to just back off a little bit and realize if we love a blended family, it's going to take a while for that to work. It won't be easy. So don't try to replace the parent. And that leads me to, I've kind of already gotten onto the second one. Be patient. If you're a step-parent, don't push your step-kids to call you dad. Don't push your step-kids to call you mom. You're not trying to impress anybody anyway. Just let the kids go at their own pace. It's been hard for them. If you've grieved the loss of a marriage, they've grieved the loss of a family. It's not going to be easy. Let them go at their own pace. Let them learn to love you. Understand that at first their feelings might not be very good because they're grieving. And sometimes what we hear is, is ugliness is just pain talking. And so you want to be patient. It's the third one. I don't have time to develop it, but it's really big. This goes back to the somebody's got to be the adult thing. Don't obsess about the ex. You know? Don't ask a lot of questions about the ex. And you say, well, Mark, you just don't understand. My, my husband's first wife just calls on the phone and she rants and raves and does all this kind of stuff and makes life miserable. Maybe that's true, but it takes two to play the game. You just got to say, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going there. Don't obsess about the ex. And then finally, number four, give, give your spouse time alone with his or her kids. You say, well, we're a family now. We're going to do everything together. It's not easy. You know, give your wife some time with her kids. Give your husband some time with his kids. And then when you get back together as a family, just make some new traditions. Make some new family, family, family lifestyle with, with your blended family. Now, again, I apologize for the message today. I, I know I've just thrown all kinds of stuff at you. And maybe you haven't had time to really process it all. But my prayer for all of you who are going through a difficult time with the blended family is that God will put his grace on you. And be patient. And I want to leave you with something this morning. If you have your Bibles, and if you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. There, there are Bibles right in front of you in the back of the pew, and then I think this will be up on the IMAG screen. I want to give you the scripture for every family who wants to have a successful blended family. God's got great advice in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And I'm going to go through part of verse 15. The Bible says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves... You must, you must clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, here's the thing. When you wake up in the morning, do you have all your clothes on? Probably not. If you do, you have some strange sleeping habits. Now, you know, we look, you guys look great today, but you, you don't look like you slept in what you have on. You had to clothe yourself, didn't you? Willfully, volitionally, you had to go to the closet and make some choices. 
You had to choose to clothe yourself. Now go back and look at that list. Tenderhearted, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I just want to tell you, you're not going to wake up with that. Especially if you're in a blended family. If you're in a tough marriage and you're dealing with stepkids and your own kids and all the things that you're dealing with and exes, you're just not going to wake up in the morning with tenderhearted, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You've got to go put them on. You've got to choose these things. Now here's the big one, verse 13. Make allowance for each other's faults. You've got to give people space. Listen, if you're in a blended marriage, you've got to say, a blended family, you've got to say, we're going to have to give each other some space. I mean, everybody's not going to do right. They're going, it's not going to be one, one person being a center plus another person being a center. It's going to be center squared. It's going to be center cubed. It's going to be a challenge. So what are we going to do? We're going to back off and give each other some space and realize that nobody's perfect. Verse 14. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace, this is so big. Man, I wish I could develop this. Maybe we will another weekend. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Now that word rule there is an athletic term. It means to umpire. You know what's often the problem in a blended family? It's who's going to umpire. Who's going to say that was out of bounds? Who's going to say, you know, that catch was made out of bounds? Who's going to say it's inbounds? And oftentimes you have kids who are like not part of the family all the time, but come over part of the time, and they're saying, you're not going to be my umpire. You're not going to be my referee. You're not my parent. You're, you know, you know and, and we've got all these things. Who's going to umpire? Who's going to referee? Did you listen to what God said? God said, let the peace that comes from Christ referee. You know what that means, bottom line? If you're trying to do a blended family, you can't do it by yourself. You say, Mark, we've tried this thing and it's not working. It's hard. You bet. It's impossible unless Jesus is there. Because if Jesus is in your home, he referees. It's his grace. It's his love. It's his forgiveness. It's his tenderhearted mercies. It's that giving people space stuff that referees. The power, listen, at some point, and forgive me for making it this blunt, if you're putting a blended family together, you've got to ask yourself at some point, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Do you believe there's a power out there that's bigger than your husband? Do you believe there's a power that's bigger than what's in your life? Do you believe that there's a power that can overcome anything? And if you do believe in God, then you submit your lives to him and you say, Lord, we've got to let your peace, the peace that we can't bring, the peace that only you can bring, we've got to let that rule and umpire in our family. That's how it works. Pray with me, please. Maybe someone is here today and you're just saying, Mark, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how to get a hold of Jesus. I don't have his email address. I don't don't have his phone number. You don't need that. Jesus is God. And through his Holy Spirit, he's present in every one of your... He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows everything going down at your house. And most of all, he knows what you're thinking right now. You know, all he wants is for you to invite him in. I mean... He did something to make things all right between you and God. Our our bad stuff, our bads, our sins are what separates us from God, and we all have them. But 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was God and man at the same time, lay down on a wooden cross, and he held out his hands for those people to put nails in. And he crossed his ankles, 
and he allowed them to nail a nail through the middle of his feet. And for six hours, he hung on a cross, enduring agony that you and I will never understand. And the reason why he did it was to pay our tab. But just like if someone wrote you a check, you'd still have to endorse and present it. And that's what God is saying. Jesus paid it all. He paid for everything. But you have to invite him into your life. Jesus is a gentleman. He will not force his way in. Have you ever invited him in? Because if you do, it's the biggest thing you've ever done. I mean, God will move into your life. You'll have a power and a strength you never had before. You'll have God's strength. You'll have God's guidance and wisdom. And most of all, you'll live forever with Jesus Christ. It's just as simple as saying yes. Here is the Bible I'm quoting now. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Would you be willing to say yes to him? I'm going to pray a prayer. You don't have to use my words if you don't want to, but if you mean them, you can pray this prayer with me. Mean it from your heart, and God will hear your prayer. Here we go. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. I'm asking you in. Come into my life. Save me. Forgive me. Let me start over. I trust you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I know that's a simple prayer, but if you prayed it, God heard it. And if you meant it from your heart. Hey, I, I got something I want to do for you. When you came in, you got a worship folder. There's a place on there where you can put your name and address. There's some boxes, and you can check the box. If you pray with me to receive Christ, I'm going to ask you to do a bold thing. I want you to check that box. Put your name and address on there. I want to send you this this weekend. It's a DVD set and some important stuff that we've put together. I want you to know what it means to follow Jesus and, and how to take the first steps and to know what you just did. So if you, if, you, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you take your car, drop it in the box by the back door, drop it in the offering plate, drop it at the bottom of the stairway, and the box is there if you're in the balcony or galleries. And if you don't want to wait, if you want it today, you don't have to wait. You go straight back to guest services. All you have to do is hand them your card. You don't have to make a speech or anything. Just hand them your card and say, I prayed with Mark. Actually, they don't have to say that. They'll give you this, and you can take it with you today. Because I, try, I, I tell you, at New Spring Church, we're not about a denomination. We're not about a bunch of rules. We're not about church as usual. We're about one person. We're about Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can take the messes that I've made and that you've made and help us get it all right and, most of all, live with him forever. We just want you to know Jesus because he changes everything. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward now. They're going to receive the offering. You know, please don't forget about the special offering that we're receiving. And if you're not prepared for that today, it's okay. It's cool. We'll have more opportunities. You can also give online. And uh, we're going to receive the offering. And, um, we'll, you know, believe this. When you give to God's work, God will bless it, and he'll turn around and bless you. He's certainly done that in my life. Lord, receive this offering. Bless it. Thank you for the faith of your people who are going to do extraordinary things through their giving. And we trust that you will make these things possible and then turn around and bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.